0: Listeners, we are coming to you today from a city called Bielefeld in the northwest of Germany. And our guest today is um, a scientist called Ursula Martin. Thank you so much for joining us, Ursula.
1: Well, it's great to talk to you guys. Um, (laughs) We're sitting in the sunshine, which for people from, I don't know, Britain, people who spend a lot of their time in Scotland, being in the sunshine is especially nice. It's Um, wonderful. (laughs) Yes. it's also great to hear about a new kind of science outreach programme that I haven't been aware of before.
0: So you are actually a professor of computer science at the University of Oxford, but how did you get to where you are today? Tell us a little bit about your studies and your journey. Oh gosh, well, tell
1: me about my journey. You know, this is audio, but you know, if, you, if you could see me, or you could see the pictures, you'd realise I'd been around for a while. <laughs> um, I started out as a teenager being very keen on math because my father was very keen on math, and he showed me math puzzles. And and that motivated me to study math at school in a way that my school was an all-girls school, and they particularly encouraged people to do math, but I had this self-motivation. And I ended up studying math at Cambridge University, uh, at a time when there were very few women at Cambridge studying math. Only 10% of the class were female, something like that. Had a great time, came across all sorts of different kinds of math, um, built an interesting network of people. I didn't stay on to grad school in Cambridge because I found it, I was doing incredibly well in the exams. I didn't find it at the time a mentoring or a nurturing place particularly, so I went to a different university for my doctoral studies, Warwick University, which then and now is a very exciting math department. I then got, you know, I'm so old I programmed yeah. with punch cards. Oh, wow. Well. For people who remember what punch cards are, but they, you know, you you didn't sit in front of a screen and program. You worked out what your program in Fortran was, what the instructions were going to be. You then sat in front of a sort of old-fashioned brain mechanical machine and it produced the punch cards. They got... Shipped off somewhere and run, and then the next morning you came back to collect the output, which was a massive it was this what people call tractor paper, big sheets of paper, and of course if you 'd done well, your program had run if you 'd done badly, it just had <laughs> never a message. <laughs> Or, of course, you might have borrowed one of the illicit stacks of punch cards that circulated around the lab and you had a massive printout of Marilyn Monroe or Mickey Mouse or something. <laughs> you know, that, was, that, was, that was state of the art in those days. Um, but I got quite hooked on computing. Um, then, after my graduate work, I, I worked, in, in the, uh, worked in the worked in States in a banner champagne for a couple of years, got even more hooked on computing. That was just after. Some guys had used computing to solve a really challenging math problem, the four-colour problem. Could you describe the four-colour problem? The four-colour problem problem says, describe the four-colour problem in words. Well, there (laughs) you go. Imagine a map of, let's say, the states of the US. And imagine you want to colour the map of the states, and you want every two adjacent states to be different colours you know if you look at the maps on 538 at the moment you you see you've got lots of blue ones and lots of red ones but you want two adjacent states (laughs) to be different colours how many colours will you need now if you look at the place where four states collide uh, then you need two you need red blue red blue because those two counting at the corner doesn't count but but if you have three states that sort of join at an edge you're going to need three colours um So how many colors do you need altogether? Well, it turns out, however you experiment, however complicated, however you adjust the map of the US, you need four colors. You never need five. Or if you find yourself using five, you can go back and change some of the colors, Mm -hmm. and you need four. Now, that's a problem that's very easy to describe, but the mathematical proof was very complicated. And the, the kind of way in which the argument goes, which is the kind of way that lots of math arguments can sometimes go, is to say, okay, here are all the easy cases, and here are some slightly less easy cases, but if we take a less easy case, look, here are some ways we can make it the same as an easy case. And that kind of argument resulted in saying, okay, here are all the possible maps ever, but actually we can simplify them all down and so we only have to solve the problem for some small, well, several hundred actually, but you know, <laughs> finite the number. Small. And, and then, well, how do we, now we've got it down to a finite number of things, we can get a computer to check that we colour each of those things with four colours. That was roughly how it went. Anyway, I got hooked on computers for doing algebra, and then it was but a short step, I then moved back to the UK, and I had the choice, really, of going back into a math department or a computer science department. And I've worked since then on the sort of interface of computer science and math and brought my math skills to computer science, brought my computer science skills to, to math to some extent. Uh, worked with a bunch of great people, had a bunch of great grad students. I've also had a lot of fun working with people in companies, people in industry, and often through actually keeping in touch with my grad students who've gone into companies. You know, sometimes... You're an academic, and your grad student does a PhD, and then instead of staying on in a university, they think, well, you know, they want to earn some money, or live in the same place as their partner, or, you know, a yep. more understandable thing. So they, they go out and work in a company, and then they, they sometimes feel very embarrassed about it. So, well, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry I'm applying for jobs <laughs> with Google. Mm, you're sorry? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, if I was 30 years younger, you know. Um, but, of course, you keep in touch with people, and then you come across all kinds of interesting math problems. And um, I had an absolutely fascinating thing I worked on. It was with some people who worked, well, they worked for the military, but they were involved in designs for novel aircraft. And so that involved the math of what's called control theory. The fundamental of the problem was, if you imagine, I'm simplifying rather mm-hmm. a lot, but... You know, if you imagine you're designing a passenger plane, you want it to be nice and smooth. If you're designing a fighter plane, you want it to be able to be nimble. Now, if the passenger plane jerked around like that, well, the passengers wouldn't feel very comfortable, wouldn't feel very well. But on the other hand, you know, if the military plane moved like a passenger plane, it wouldn't be very... So there's a sort of trade-off, and they were trying to work out where this trade-off lay, if you like, between being having a smooth ride and being flexible and agile enough. That involved solving certain mathematical problems. And then when you'd done the design, it also involved running a bunch of checks on the design, because obviously if you've made a mistake, you want to catch that mistake at the design stage, mm-hmm. not once you've built the plane, Yeah, rather yep. cheaper. <laughs> um, And rather, well, rather fewer uncomfortable-feeling passengers and pilots. And that's an area of what's called computer verification. That's where I started how my interest in computer proof arose, because essentially you've got a design, a design for a piece of software, in this case a design for something that's going to fly a plane, and you want to um, check that the design has certain properties. Now, one way is to run lots and lots of simulations, but you might always be worried you'd missed some, strange odd case you know Mm -hmm. what happens the wind's blowing this way and the pilot does that thing and you know something else happens so you come up with what are called symbolic methods or logical methods and that leads you to what's called getting computer proof or computer verification getting a computer to check not just to run simulations but to check all possible cases of something and um We did this fascinating piece of work with the plane designers. In fact, what we did is we did the kind of thing that mathematicians always love to do. We took their problem and we made it much more abstract. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it was quite interesting the way in which we did that because we were talking to them one day and they were explaining something by drawing a diagram. If you've studied control engineering, it's a typical diagram where you have blocks and arrows and Uh loops. They had this on the whiteboard and they were describing the behavior, if you like, as so, in the diagram. They said, well, look, at this point this happens, and at this point that happens, and at this point that happens, and it goes around the loop, but as it goes around the loop, this other thing doesn't change. And I sat there listening to them and I thought, hey, I know this concept. This concept of this happens, then that happens, but the loop doesn't change things. And that's a concept that people have used in the very abstract study of what's called the logic of computer programming. It's a phenomenon called Hoare logic, after Tony Hoare, who is still with us, who was a very eminent professor in Oxford. And I thought, hey, actually, what these engineers are doing, what they've reinvented, if you like, just in the way they're talking about this stuff, is Hoare logic. So then I went away and explained their problem in terms of very abstract whore logic, full of terrible Greek letters. I doubt <laughs> if they ever read the paper. But we did. My, my student, um, Ruth Hardy, then wrote a very nice paper based on all this. Um, she too went off to work in a company, so we were a different company, so we were never able to exploit that either. Uh, but um, it was a fascinating example of how you go, how you integrate the concrete, how you integrate talking to people, looking at people's, um, in the jargon you would call it, reflecting on people's design practice. I think Mm -hmm. the engineers would have been a bit nervous if Mm -hmm. you talked to them about their design practice. But they were doing what they do. They were very experienced engineers. They had a way of thinking about things Mm -hmm. that we could learn from as theoreticians. I've always enjoyed this kind of interdisciplinary work, this kind of um, bringing together different areas of math and practical application and computing as so well.
0: Yeah, for me, this is kind of one of the, the interesting things about this, because having married a theoretician, I'm a biologist, and he's being referred to by mathematicians as a biologist, which I find <laughs> hilarious. But um, I... Started to learn a little bit more about how very abstract maths is. For for me, it's it's literally just this tool that we plug our numbers into to get the the answer at the end of it. So the idea that it's used for something that's much more creative and for something that's to me just blows my mind because I don't understand it at all. Um, so for me, it's very interesting to hear that that something that abstract can still be applied to um, very practical situations. So that kind of answers one of my questions that I was going to ask, which is, what are the real world applications of these kind of things?
1: Yes, so I had this career doing all sorts of interdisciplinary things. I then moved to getting even more interdisciplinary. I moved into university management, um, which involved... Actually, one of the fun bits about it was working, not working closely, but being able to interact with scientists across many different disciplines. I worked at an institution called Queen Mary, University of London, mm-hmm. uh, which is an institution that's very proud of its history, of working with very... the traditional communities of the East End of London, often providing an education for people who wouldn't otherwise have thought to go to university. And I looked after uh, eight schools of science and engineering of different kinds there. And that was terrific fun. And I then, sadly, um, I, I went... Came ill with breast cancer a few years ago and I, you know, I had to stop being a university senior manager mm-hmm. and um, it left me with a lot of time to sit at home and get bored think, well of course the internet, you know, nobody gets bored with the internet these <laughs> days um, and it, it led to a rather different kind of research direction. I started to look at people using the internet to do science, crowdsourced mathematics, Collaborating online, and I realised that this gave you a different kind of insight into the processes of doing mathematics. Because if you read a finished math paper, well, you know it's pretty incomprehensible except to <coughs> the author and his, you know, five best friends if he's lucky. Um, but and it doesn't tell you anything about where the ideas came from. It doesn't tell you the fact that you know the author might have spent two years getting nowhere or following a dead end, none of that will be captured in the paper. But um, a group of mathematicians were experimenting with collaborating online, um, which meant they could collaborate at a distance, but also it captured everything that they were doing, the dead ends, the social chat, and it captured the insights. It captured, again, the things that don't get... The, the moment when a senior mathematician said, "Look, I don't know if this is going to work, but I think we might try this because. And of course they never put because in the, they never put the because mm-hmm. in the finished paper. And um, I found, started to find that absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I then discovered that there were all sorts of other people who, think about, I'd always thought about this formal mathematics, this formal proof, but you think about this informal stuff, and I discovered there was a whole community of people working in curiously, particularly looking at these processes in, not just in mathematics research, but in mathematics education, and also looking at these processes in music, and um, so I I started to work with uh, somebody called Alison Pease, who's here, there's a whole group at Goldsmiths in London. Uh, around somebody called Simon Colton a bunch of people working on these more ideas about creativity has led to a whole bunch of interdisciplinary collaborations and um, the privilege as a senior academic not to have to carry on being a university manager but actually to get a big research grant to sit in Oxford and pursue these ideas in in Oxford Um, so I now have, over the past two or three years I've been working with philosopher Um, that's rather intriguing on (laughs) understanding what mathematicians mean by explanation and we're looking empirically at all the data from these mathematical conversations philosophers don't normally work empirically you know they just they bounce off other other philosophers but it's not a great tradition in philosophy actually going away and looking at data Mm -hmm. Um, I've been working with um, Social scientists to understand what goes on when mathematicians talk to each other. And again, that's fascinating. All these disciplines bring different kinds of research questions, different modes of inquiry, come up with different conclusions. The the social scientists, they would look at people interacting. They'd notice what was not being said. Mm-hmm. They would notice metaphor. And the talk I was giving here included some ideas of how often mathematicians use metaphors of landscape, of exploring, mm-hmm. of exploring a conceptual space and what's that telling us about the nature of mathematics. They use metaphors drawn from craft and craftsmanship and experiment and, and the whole. So you, you, you start thinking about things in a, in a very different way. And I also fell in with historians of mathematics. That was somewhat unexpected because the um, Oxford is very fortunate to have in the... Bodleian Libraries, the archives of somebody called Ada Lovelace, Mm -hmm. who's very well known. Mm -hmm. If you look up on the web, you'll find a gazillion web pages making more or less extravagant claims about how she invented the computer. Well, no, she didn't really do that. She was the first programmer, or she made Silicon Valley come about. Well, she didn't know, actually. Silicon Valley would have happened without her. um, (laughs) But what she did do was rather remarkable. She was a Victorian woman from an aristocratic background. Part of a social circle of victorian scientists engineers entrepreneurs and she became friendly with somebody called charles babbage who had invented something he called the analytical engine which was a wonderful invention a wonderful he never actually built the analytical engine but he had some extraordinarily prescient ideas which he never wrote down in very articulate form he he was very he was one of these people with kind of a scattershot mind and he he developed all sorts of designs, he did all sorts of interesting things, but he never wrote down an account that the general public could understand, and that account was written by Ada Lovelace. Mm-hmm. And it contains a thing which, well, you can argue about whether it was the first computer program or not, but it was a table describing the working of the machine, and it's a rather remarkable thing. And the paper is remarkable, because you can read it now, with knowledge, and... Sometimes the language is a bit archaic, you know, they don't call it the memory, they call it the store. Well, I think we can cope with that. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and you think, gosh, you know, this Lovelace or Lovelace and Babbage really understood this thing. And and the Bodleian Library also has a trove of her archive, her mathematical correspondence with people. So I started working with some historians on all of this. It turned out that although everybody knows about Ada Lovelace... Nobody'd really studied her mathematical archive in the Bodleian Library, which was really extraordinary. It was sitting there. Nobody'd studied it properly. So we've digitised it, we've transcribed it, we're writing a, a paper about what's going on, and it makes you realise the sadness of the situation here as somebody who's enormously talented as a mathematician, but beyond the paper with um, about Babbage's engine, never realised that talent because she well, she died very young. It mm-hmm. um, also makes you realise that... There were so many talented people at that time who were cut off from uh, developing their potential for all kinds of reasons, reasons of gender, reasons of class, reasons of money, reasons remarkable story. So that's kind of got me to where I am now, sitting in Oxford, having fun. Um, One reason I can have fun, actually, is that the academic world now is very different from the academic world when I started. People at the end of their careers like me can afford to have fun I can afford to write a paper with a philosopher, which, I mean, it's extraordinary working with people in the humanities. They they write their papers, they write journal papers. They don't immediately rush to put them on the archive. (laughs) They, They 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 you submit them to the journal, and if you're submitting them to a journal, you're meant not. To make them public until the journal's made up its mind. Oh, um, you haven't worked with biologists much, yeah. I hope. <laughs> 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 mm. And so I can afford to follow up different kinds of interests, which won't do much for my H index or my. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for people who don't I,
0: understand what the H index for is. People who don't,
1: I can, so basically, whichever whatever academic discipline you're in, whatever university system you're in, These days, for young academics, it's a much more driven world than the world I grew up in. And when you're senior like me, you can afford to ignore those things. You can afford to say, well, actually, I don't need to build my CV anymore. I can just have fun. And I remember my, my mother used to say to us when we were kids, you know, don't do as I do, do as I say. Yes. And similarly, you know, as a senior academic, I can go off and have fun talking to philosophers, historians, I have to say to the grad students, no, 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 no you mustn't do what I do. You, know, you, have to, mm-hmm. you have to work out how you build a career, how you get the milestones, how you mm-hmm. write the right papers in the right journals, get the right citation count, get yep. the right grants. And, and I find that a bit, bit sad, really. You know, yep. I have the creative freedom as an academic, and they don't, or they, you know...
0: They spend I, a huge amount mm, of their time just checking boxes. Yes, ticking boxes. Yep.
1: And they would have to be very bold to throw away the box ticking. And it's interesting that sometimes the people who are bold enough to throw away the box ticking are the people who are in different kinds of academic situations. Maybe they're working in what would typically be called lower-division institutions. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're building a career... As a consultant, Mm -hmm. one of my most fun collaborators is somebody who um, has his own consultancy company when he needs to pay the rent. If he's listening, he knows who I mean, but I won't Mm -hmm. say his name to embarrass him. Um, If he needs to go and pay the rent, then he goes and does another gig for this, that, or the other company who pays him a pile of money to do it, and the rest of the time he does maths. He has much more freedom than some, somebody in the academic rat race.
0: Sounds like it? the dream. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I think as a biologist to maintain a lab, it's not Yes, it's
1: not going to work for biologists. I don't, maybe I don't know if there's an equivalent for what I just said for biologists.
0: So you, you touched on this briefly, the, the idea that there are various hindrances within science, and certainly in the past, one of them was gender. And one of the things that we read whilst we looked you up was that you were the first female professor at the university of st andrews not of computer science but the first female oh, professor anything. in a university that was established in 1411
1: i know it's isn't crazy
0: astonishing it's astonishing isn't it i mean of course it says a lot more about
1: them than it does about <laughs> me but, um, well it might have something to do with you as well it's a, it's quite astonishing um i think that um you know you get individual cultures in individual places um St Andrews was geographically rather isolated. It perhaps got stuck in a particular way of looking at the world over many years. It then acquired a very energetic new principal, president, vice chancellor, whatever jurisdiction you're mm-hmm. in, boss. Um, <laughs> and the new boss, a man called Struther Arnott, who, who passed away a few years ago, has been very, was very, very dynamic in changing things, bringing in new people, reviving science, reviving. Uh, He was a a chemist, cancer, cancer, sort of on the border of chemistry and biology, Mm -hmm. Um, and bringing in new young talent, male and female, Mm -hmm. he appointed, I think I was sort of numerically the first, so to speak, but he appointed a bunch of female professors. So the Um, thing is,
0: I mean, mm -hmm. I guess generationally, Mm -hmm. it hasn't, it hadn't Mm -hmm. changed. I mean, David is also a computer Mm -hmm. scientist, and... Mm. He's kind of the next generation after you, and I'm sure he'll tell us that he did not see much of the, the female species during his studies. And so it it's taken a very long time. And as I understand it now, you are actively involved in initiatives to aid women in computer yes. science?
1: Yes. I mean, there have been a bunch of initiatives going. And I must say, you know, sometimes you say, oh, hello, is the problem still here? Oh. Yes, <laughs> quite. We tried. Um, but no, there are a huge number of initiatives now, I think, too. Um, and people's people's ideas have changed as to the form in which these initiatives should should take. But the institutions that are really successful at it, um, I point to Carnegie Mellon has been trying for a long time, Harvey Mudd, which is uh, in the US, uh, um, have been the ones where which have started at a younger age and have really thought in a more principled way about what was going on. So, for example, Carnegie Mellon had the freedom... The thing I'm about to describe at Carnegie Mellon, we couldn't do in the UK because all the systems work differently, but Mm. Carnegie Mellon sat down and thought about what is our degree programme about? Well, our degree programme about is creating leaders in computer science. Right. What does that mean we're going to look for in our applications process. What does that mean we're going to look for, how we're going to cultivate people who take the the, the advanced placement test in the US context. Um, And so they changed their selection process, they worked a lot with certain elite high schools on on APT's in in, in computer science and so on. and they changed their selection process so that instead of looking for geekiness, they were looking for evidence of broader interest, broader, the kinds of um, other things that people had done in high school, mm-hmm. other talents, people, well, if you're looking for people who are going to be leadership leaders in a, you know, in a technical discipline, maybe in high school, they've shown leadership skills in some other way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Um, and they did. And they found that by this, they were recruiting different kinds of people to their undergraduate programmes. Um, and they were recruiting a much higher percentage of women. And then they kept on going, looking through the curriculum, looking through the ways the curriculum was designed, looking for obstacles, realising that this, um, privileging this kind of geekiness hadn't been, you know, so at some point, I remember when you hear hear the person who ran it talking, she, she, you know, she talks about a stage at which they realized that the people who happened along the way to have learned a bunch of geeky Unix commands. Well, yeah, you know, he knows a bunch of geeky Unix commands. I know a bunch of geeky Unix commands. Um, and it's kind of fun. But, okay, is it a vital skill for computer science? No, it isn't. But then if you had a lab where the lab demonstrator was inadvertently conveying the message that the people who could rattle off Who could speak fluent geek mm-hmm. were somehow better than the people who couldn't so then that wasn't reinforcing them the message they were trying to reinforce them so they, were, they had a very unified approach to it throughout the year which they've had going for many years now with very successful results um, I mean in the UK we have a uh, we have a bunch of initiatives going well. one initiative I set up in Cambridge now being run by uh, a lady called Yamnik, who which was about supporting the women who were there um, giving them networking opportunities, supporting them in developing the next stage of their careers. And we sat down with them and, and talked to them about, you know, what they would like to mentor and support them. And they, the female students at the time devised this programme. So, well, actually, you know, we'd be really interested hearing from women in high-tech companies. So, the companies keep telling us they want to recruit women. Yeah, everybody has this. Mm-hmm. these days. And so we... Um, we set up this scheme of informal lunches, where actually we the female students said, no, we don't want to close this to female students, we want the men to come along as well. You know? We actually want our partners to understand. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and so we got um, young women to come in from these companies like Google and, and, and banks and, and so on, and give very informal lunchtime presentations about what it was like to work in that company. You know, it wasn't the corporate HR PowerPoint about would know, send everybody to sleep very quickly. But it was much more practical and pragmatic. And the students were asking these people questions about um, childcare, about working in the company. And I remember we had, um, we had a presentation from somebody working on the technical side in, in Goldman Sachs. A lot, of course, a lot of the big finance houses, the big banks, mm-hmm. they need IT skills. Mm-hmm. And one of the students asked the question, what's it like? working in a company where so many of the employees are so incredibly rich. And, um, first, you know, she had a great, rather practical answer, you know. So, uh, but, well, pointing out, first of all, the IT people got pretty rich as well. But that <laughs> but actually, there were some jerks out there, but there were actually there were a lot of people who weren't jerks. But um, that worked very well, and, uh, and it's been great keeping t- in touch. We set that up now, oh, 10, 12 years ago. It's been great keeping in touch with some of the women and seeing what's happened to them and they now come back themselves and talk to the next generation of students. Um, but that's more about mentoring and supporting the students
0: that are already in, the in the pipeline, yes. in the
1: system. Um, the, the whole question about people, you know, the kind of choices people make in school, um, in high school, and of course I'm more familiar with the details of the, of the UK system mm-hmm. than systems in other countries, but... Certainly in the UK, there have been a number of changes over the past few years in our university system, our high school system. Um, and the, one of the side effects of these changes has been that more students, the numbers taking math at the end of high school, physics at the end of high school, are increasing. Num- numbers overall increasing, and the numbers of women are increasing, particularly. Yep. The, the proportion and the numbers of women are increasing in in, in math, which is, which is good. And... Um, and certainly we've, we've had a number of initiatives for um, women in math are, are growing, probably at the expense of, um, I don't know what quite, actually, <laughs> but, but some of them <laughs> maybe from the expense of biology. I don't know. but I think biology yeah. can handle it. I think biology <laughs> can handle it. And actually, I know it gets a bit silly if it gets too much focused on, well, how do we get more women into computing or more women into my computing degree well actually more women into my computing degree by telling taking a talented woman and well okay what would she have done if she hadn't done my computing degree well maybe she'd have done your biology degree or that maths degree or that engineering degree over Mm -hmm. there you know so what you want is for people to have challenging and rewarding careers and have opportunities and make the most of their opportunities and i think now about kids in high school a lot of the things you talk about are things to do with resilience and self image and mm-hmm. helping them cope with all the pressures that life throws at them you know saying saying well look here are these opportunities you might not have thought of but giving empowering them as the word you know to make yep. their own decisions make make successes of what they do and not not realize you know further on that oh wait a minute if I'd made this different choice in high school I could have done this mm-hmm. know, so it's,
0: uh, yeah I think really yeah. what what I suspect people are starting yeah. to understand now which we could have done with before is that um just don't pigeonhole people exactly and I think for obviously for girls for women yeah. this has always been a big issue in that they're they're expected to go into particular mm. professions and um, then, once they get into something, if they go into the hard sciences, for example, they don't have a lot of support, they don't have a lot of women mm. around them. Um, and I think now that's that for sure is changing. Like, I, I see mm. a lot more movement on social media with regards to uh, groups that are helping girls to learn to yes. code. Yes. Um, and, you know, maybe specifically mm. targeting girls mm. is not necessarily the idea, but again, from a mm. young age, they, they have an idea yeah. that. I can actually do this,
1: and I, I think with a lot of it too, it just depends on. Well, it's probably not appropriate for a podcast to get off on a riff about UK <laughs> you know, UK politics. So I won't. <laughs> but, um, as but much yes, as we'd like to, as much as we'd like to, but uh, no, I think giving people more opportunities at a younger age and not, you know, not not pigeonholing people and not, uh, you know, the 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 caricature where you're just relentlessly focusing on. Certainly skills at the expense of other kinds of things, at the expense of music education, arts education, Mm -hmm. um, things that give people a different kind of view on the world. It it becomes very sad, I think.
0: Yeah. And actually, this this kind of brings us to the conference at the moment, which is uh, a rather nice meeting of science and creativity. Can you tell us a little bit about why you're here? Well, I'm here because I've sort of...
1: Um, I think the, the, the organisers wanted to pull in a network of interesting people, which they very much succeeded in doing, and we've been to some great talks. Um, I'm here, I was talking about, um, about some of my research, and then just floating to this interdisciplinary audience some of these ideas I've, I'm having about, well, the importance of craftsmanship and the, the skills of the craftsman, craftsperson is just such an ugly word, crafter, (laughs) craftsperson, craftsman, (laughs) the skills of the craftsman in making things, wood carving, pottery, you know, the kinds of skills that are there and how, whether those skills are being manifest in people trying to solve difficult technical problems, difficult math problems, and I've had some great conversations with people who are thinking about these things in in the context of cognitive science, Um, Different models of the brain, different ideas of the, 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 the um, I'll never be a neuroscientist, you know, but and I you know, somebody from another area you have no idea how to even start, but people give it you talk and then you have these great conversations afterwards. Now what did you mean by that? You know. Even better you hear two neuroscientists having a conversation <laughs> Okay, right, this is something where which they they disagree about. Okay, right. So there's a disagreement in the field. Well good, that's good to know that, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know just, a field that many a question that many people are trying to resolve trying to trying to work out, so um what brought me here was yes, just the idea of hanging out with a bunch of interesting people mm-hmm. um, and it's been it's been very successful and interesting from that perspective
0: so normally we try and include some um, questions from an audience sadly today oh we gosh. don't have a regular audience because no. we're in huh. Germany, not Tampa, so these are all coming from David.
1: Um, <laughs> An audience of one. Any N indeed. equals one. But yes. he's, got, sorry, he's got to tweet them or it isn't the authentic experience. That's, yeah. That is true.
0: Um, okay, so during this conversation, computer science and maths are used interchangeably. And this, this is quite interesting, actually, because one of our friends tweeted this morning that um, this was a quote from another meeting. So computers are to computing what telescopes are to astronomy. So the idea that computer science is about computers is kind of misleading. So what what does this expression mean for you?
1: Oh, gosh, yes, it's one I've, um, it's certainly one I've heard before. I'm not sure if it's a quote from Edgar Dijkstra, is it? it it's certainly a quote I've heard before. Well, yes, in a sense, I, I mean, I know exactly what it means. It says if you, if you focus on the physical object instead of... Um, um, you know, a computer is an instrument, like a telescope is an instrument. Um, what are the, the principles of the computer and what we're trying to understand, the things that don't vary with... that are independent of the machine and so on. Um, the principles of the telescope are the principles of optics, but then it... Sorry, I'm getting a bit geeky about this, and <laughs> I'm actually, aren't I? But, but, um, but the point is that there is this phenomenon called computation, and in Oops. trying to understand computation, That's where the field of computer science, the science of computation, whether that computation is being done in, you know, physical devices, in brains, whether you can get more elaborate about that. um, I don't know. Is is an ecosystem involved, engaged in computation? Are those trees and all the the stuff going on in the ground under the trees? Oh, no, the principles of, of computation which is a, a different question from the details of any particular physical device um, and then of course the, uh, the, the, the way in which you try to understand that is understand that very largely is through mathematics um, I suppose the reason I use the terms a bit interchangeably is because I've been um, also reflecting on my own career um, my own career has been although Job title has been Professor of Computer Science. It's involved wandering about the disciplines at the moment. I'm a Professor of Computer Science who whose physical office happens to be in the Mathematics Department. Mm-hmm. That, that just reflects my own intellectual career as, as bouncing around between the two.
0: OK. Um, now, absolutely no reflection on your age, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, what are your thoughts on the idea that mathematicians do their best work before the age of 40? <laughs> I'm over 40 myself. So.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Gosh, well... It's a common cliché. It's reinforced by mechanisms like the... uh, Mathematicians don't have a Nobel Prize, but they have something called the Fields Medal. The Fields Mm -hmm. Medal is restricted to people under 40. They've now changed in in response to gender equity. I think they've now stuck the word exceptionally in there in a very small (laughs) font. Um, It depends on your view of mathematics, and there are plenty of mathematicians who've done great work after 40. I suppose you can turn it round and say... It's a field in which it's possible to do something absolutely stunning in your twenties. Mm. Whereas in other fields that might be less possible. Yes. I oh, know if you're a biologist you've got to you know, you've got to have the kudos and the respect mm-hmm. to build and the experience to build up your own lab. Yeah. So if you're a biologist it's going to be extraordinarily hard to do something stellar when you're twenty five. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're a mathematician, it's more of a solitary pursuit if you thought of it the right way then. Yeah. Then you know you can, and therefore, you know it's become it's become turned round backwards as mm-hmm. mathematicians do their best work in their twenties. I mean, so I've you know excellent example, of course, is somebody like Andrew Wiles mm-hmm. who yeah. solved Fermat's theorem, mm-hmm. and he was uh, well. I think when he he certainly when he published the paper, he was I think he was probably in his late forties. You now that was a a lifetime's piece of work. Now he's a remarkable individual who had the the confidence. Uh, Maturity, the or you know, whatever, the personal qualities that allowed him to say, right, I'm not going to knock off quick things. I'm actually going to focus on the big thing, and okay, if it takes me till I'm 55, I think it's become a little bit of a self-fulfilling. You know, people, yeah, people rush to get quick results and rush to do things. Mm. But, but it's. Um, I mean, if you've seen the the new movie about Hardy and Ramanujan. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, Yeah, you did, yes. Well, Ramanujan was, I think, in his 20s when he was doing his remarkable Mm -hmm. work because he died quite young. But Hardy was, was much older.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I, I'm so glad we we looked at the itinerary for SIF, <laughs> and David handily picked you out as a, a good candidate. I hope you enjoy the rest of your conference, and we'll now let you off to go and enjoy your lunch. I assume.
1: Well, it's been it's been great talking to you. Actually, it's great that people take the time to do this kind of public engagement. Um, I had to um, a plug for. Something that my colleagues at Queen Mary do, it's, we don't do podcasts so much, but it's a magazine and a website called cs for fun CS mm-hmm. Figure 4 Fun, mm-hmm. FN. Yes, so their mission has been, forget about um, school KPIs, forget about performance tests. What we want to do is to convince kids that computing is fun. And they do it through um, schools talks videos they've done a whole lot of thing about how magic tricks show you computer science Mm -hmm. and this magazine that has popular articles about computing and they're just such great guys and they they put so much energy into it and Mm -hmm. and their talks are always a riot they're always they're now training up a whole bunch of other people to work with them their school talks always go down uh, tremendously well and I think it's you know it's great when people take the time to do that have that kind of that kind of commitment, and it's great you do it.
0: Well, thank you so much. We very much appreciate hearing positive feedback about the amount of time and effort <laughs> we put into this outside of our own work. <laughs> yes, yeah, great. She's so nice today.
1: Now it was 1992. It, St Andrews was, and is a very small town. But when I got there, it was extraordinary. You know, I remember I had these strange incidents. I remember going, to going into the library with my library card, which said Professor Ursula Martin in it, and going up to the desk, and there was a rather old-school lady behind the desk, and she looked at me, and she looked at the card, and she said... That'll be your husband's card. You're not meant to use your husband's library card. Goodness. Mm, no, actually, it's my library card. Actually if you look at the photograph. Yes. A photograph does kind of don't you think <laughs> I was rather more polite don't you think the photograph looks a bit like me? I watch the
0: university. you've just been listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at two s c i s facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in